Hello and welcome to season four of the Bible and Me podcast. This is episode nine of 12 in this series. So join us on this journey as we discover some incredible testimonies of people whose lives have been well and truly changed for the calling of God. In this episode, Nigel Watts sits down with Dr. Chris Sinkinson, a lecturer in Old Testament and apologetics at Moreland's Bible College. A modern-day Indiana Jones, Chris discusses some exciting excavations he's been a part of, along with why the Bible is so important to him. The views expressed by the individual in this podcast may not reflect that of Precept Ministries UK. We hope this podcast inspires you in your daily walk and would love it if you could leave a review or rating so that we can encourage more people to the good news of the gospel. Now, without further ado, here's the podcast. I am very pleased to be welcoming Dr. Chris Sinkinson to the programme today. Chris is a lecturer in Old Testament and apologetics at Moreland's Bible College, and his interests in the background to Bible history have motivated him to lead a number of both student tours to Israel and take part in archaeological digs there. Chris has been a pastor, uh, has written a number of articles for Christian magazines, and he's also written books, including one called Backchat, Answering Christianity's Critics, another one called Time Travel to the Old Testament, and a third called Confident Christianity. He's married to Roz, they have two boys. Uh, Chris loves travel, film, and history. And he is a man after my own heart because he does not much like cooking. So, Chris, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much, Nigel. Uh, Good to be with you. I know that you're just back from the US. Um, what were you doing out there? I've just got back from the Christian Visual Media Association Conference, uh, which is a, a gathering, an international gathering of Christians involved in film, TV, uh, script writing, acting. And uh, it's a fantastic opportunity to bring people from all those different backgrounds together for one hub, one uh, place where there can be mutual encouragement, support and networking. Very exciting to see what they're doing. And what, what's, why are you involved with that? What's your heart? Well, uh, I was simply speaking, I was, I was sharing some devotional messages from the book of Daniel uh, <laughs> through the week. So I was sharing in that capacity. But uh, it was, uh, from my point of view, just a real blessing to see what God is doing in the whole world of visual media. How many very capable, talented Christians are involved in, in producing quality movies and TV programmes, which sometimes in the UK we, we forget just how... Uh, wonderful uh, the resource of the church is as we put our minds to producing quality quality film material. Yeah, wonderful. So Chris, um, I want to ask you, how did you become a follower of Jesus? And wh why do you follow him? Well, I came to faith when I was uh, in my later teens, so 17, 18, and uh, my conversion I would put primarily down to a Christian union that formed at Sixth Form College. And uh, I would go along and just be very interested in why Christians would give up lunchtime uh, to meet together. That seemed uh, like an odd thing to do. And yet it intrigued me because I suppose I was interested in the big questions of, of life. And uh, it's funny, I, I've lost uh, touch with the person who set up that Christian union. But many, many years later, having been a pastor of a church, uh, a couple of my church members happened to be on holiday where this person is also a pastor, pastoring a church. And they happened to mention that I was their pastor. And he <laughs> said, oh, I remember him. He is the one who used to come and heckle our uh, Christian union meetings. Now, to be honest, I don't remember heckling, but I certainly used to ask all the questions I had. And I felt Christianity provided satisfying 
answers to the biggest questions we have. And that still to me would be one of the reasons I'd give as to why I'm a Christian is that uh, the Christian faith satisfies our deepest and most important questions. Hmm. And before that time, when you were sort of 17, that you talked about, I mean, did you have a Christian upbringing? Did you go to church was, or, or, or not really? We, we did. There was a church going background, but um, I'd probably have to say it was um, a very nominal uh, kind of uh, church background. Uh, the kind of uh, church where, well, my father was a church warden and an atheist, and uh, I'm not sure the vicar believed a great deal more at that time. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, but what, what was it about... Um, Clearly, you, you had a questioning mind going to those meetings, and I guess what you were hearing um, answered the questions that you had. Would you say that? And, and yeah. Did there come a point where you say, you know what, yes, and I, I, I understand who Jesus is, I understand what he's done for me. <clears throat> um, would, that, did that, would you say that happened, and what changed as a result of that? Yeah, I mean, my dad, who I say wasn't a believer, uh, was an atheist, uh, did teach me to always ask questions. He was always very um, uh, sceptical about anything. And uh, that, that's a good attitude to have, actually, I think, because uh, if we question everything in the right attitude and at the right time, getting the right answers, that can lead us to truth. And so that kind of um, uh, desire to ask questions, to uh, think outside the box, not maybe to go with the flow, that, that all helped me to um, come to faith in Christ. And what I'm hesitant about in answer to your question, Nigel, is I don't want to make it sound like it's purely an intellectual ascent. You know, it's not that. The deepest questions we have in life aren't just intellectual. In fact, some of our deepest questions we can't even articulate as questions, but they are longings and needs and uh, a recognition that this world is not just what we see. And it's at that level, I think, that Christianity satisfies. Jesus describes himself as the bread of life. And this is the stuff of life. This is our basic needs that are being met in him. And that's what I really found with Christ. Yeah, the intellectual questions, many of which were answered, some of which weren't. And, you know, we continue to ask questions. So there are questions that as Christians we continue to explore and, and uh, we may not reach final certainty on this side of eternity. But the deepest questions, those are the ones that are satisfied in him. Yeah. Now, for a period of uh, 10 years or so, you were busy studying at yeah. university uh, in Southampton and then Bristol and then Liverpool. Um, why did you go from studying English and philosophy to theology? How, how did that transition happen? Well, to be honest with you, deep down, I'm just a wannabe archaeologist. So <laughs> I originally signed up to do archaeology at Southampton University. Okay. And, uh, and then I discovered archaeology is uh, in the UK... Very little to do with Indiana Jones, much more to do with standing in wet English fields. Yeah. And so I decided to switch to English and philosophy, which were drier. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, also allowed me to pursue my interest in philosophy, questions, uh, issues of life. But I never really lost touch with the fact that that was for a purpose. It wasn't like philosophy as an end in itself, which, to be honest, I find deadly boring if it becomes an end in itself. But philosophy as a tool to help us to find out truth, uh, that actually dovetails with archaeology, with history, with theology. Uh, in fact, uh, my, my favourite subject in philosophy was philosophy of religion, and uh, there's only a wafer-thin uh, gap between philosophy of religion and theology. And really, that's what I then took further as my PhD. Hmm. Um, once you completed your studies, you worked for the University of St. College's Christian Fellowship, UCCF. Right. 
uh, and then moved into ministry in a church setting yeah. uh, before becoming a lecturer at Morelands. Um, how did you find the transition from being a pastor, ministering in a church, to what you're doing now? At one level, the transition is not enormous at all, because I think I, I am still a pastor in the sense that uh, we are pastoring uh, students as they uh, do their studies. I mean, the turnover is uh, quicker than it should be in any normal local church. Uh, one would hope that the whole congregation doesn't turn over every three years. <laughs> but nonetheless, there is that sense of ongoing pastoral ministry as a, as a, a lecturer here at Morelands College. So um, in one sense, the transition is not enormous. Uh, I'm also still on the leadership team of my church, so I'm still very involved in a local church. And I think that's very important for me because how can we teach theology applied theology in a Bible college setting unless we're we're personally involved in a applied theology in ministry. So I'm still in, very much involved in my local church. So at one sense, transition is not great. At another sense, of course, it is because realistically you move from a lifestyle that's um, uh, we, we used to talk about stipendary salaries because it was a, a vocational calling. It was, a, you know, how many hours does a pastor work? I mean, you couldn't put 40 hours on it. It's a mm. lifestyle. It's a calling and 24-7 is a lifestyle. Yep. So yep. in one sense, I've moved from that to a much more of a clearly defined 8.30 to 5.30 uh, job in an office. And uh, yeah, it's got pros and cons, <laughs> if I could just put it like that. Do you miss being a pastor of church? <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I do very much, uh, very much. And uh, I miss uh, being able to invest more fully in engaging in a community and in lifestyle. Mm. Uh, I, I miss the opportunity to engage in, in what you could call the kind of coal face of, of just living it out and uh, being, being involved in church planting, for example. So, you know, I do what I can with... More, more limited time that I have, but sure. yeah, I, I do. Yeah, yeah. Now, I know that you love taking part uh, in archaeological digs in Israel, and I have to say, you know, from a personal perspective, that sounds just fantastic. How, how did that start? Um, and tell us about some of the things that you've, you've dug up. Um, well, you know, have you found the Ark of the Covenant or Noah's Ark or any of those? <laughs> no, none of that. None of that. Uh, it, it started for me as a very little child. I was always interested in archaeology. I'd always be out looking for things and uh, picking up stones that had interesting shapes and uh, may have been flints. And uh, so I always had an interest in archaeology. My first ever job, I like to point out, was with an archaeological trust. Uh, I'm kind of exaggerating slightly. It was just a summer. It was a summer job before I went to university with the Test Valley Archaeological Trust in Romsey. But um, I enjoyed that enormously. And uh, and in many ways, I, I, there's still a part of me that would love to have pursued a, a career in archaeology. Mm. But um I've come back full circle, having had that involvement in archaeology even long before I was a believer. Uh, now teaching theology, teaching Bible, I think brings us face to face with an interest in archaeology. I don't think you can go far in the Bible before you realise we're dealing with real places, real people, real history. So we take the students up to the British Museum and uh, look at exhibits that, that time with biblical history, of which there are many. And uh, we, we take them out to Israel and, uh, again, opportunities to, to make those connections between the biblical text and the world of archaeology. And the light goes both ways. You know, the Bible casts light on the ancient world, helps us to read the ancient world and its archaeology. And then on the other hand, archaeology helps us read the Bible. And it's not that the Bible isn't sufficient. The Bible is sufficient, but there are outside resources to help bring alive or, or cast light on other aspects of the biblical text we might have otherwise missed. Mm. So that relationship between archaeology and the Bible, I don't understand why 
uh, anyone th would think that that's a, an odd thing to be interested in, because I think we should all be interested in the archaeological world. And then more personally, of course, uh, that's then given me the, the privilege, the opportunity to be involved more directly in archaeological digs. So we've taken the students out to be involved in a, the Temple Mount Sifting Project. That's just a volunteer uh, operation in Jerusalem. And then I've personally been involved in Bethsaida at Etel, northern shore of the Sea of Galilee, uh, for three of their seasons. And I hope to go back out again next year. And how long do you go out for? And what do you what, what do you do when you're it's, out there? Okay, so the season will be three months, but I won't be there for that yeah. long. Or not even three months, two months, but I won't be there for that long. Uh, I'll try and get a couple of weeks from the college to, to allow me to go out. Yeah. And uh, what would we do during that time? Well, uh, it, to answer that question, I would need to explain a little bit about how a dig works. So okay. uh, if you okay. bear with yeah. me, yeah. if you bear with me, uh, you know, Israel, the land of Israel or Canaan, whatever you want to call mm. it, this land is really the birthplace of archaeology. The archaeology has only been around a couple of hundred years, but this is the place where the archaeologists really cut their teeth and learnt their skills. I mean, it's not that there wasn't archaeology elsewhere. Uh, there's work being done, obviously, in Egypt and in uh, Turkey and uh, in, in Greece. But, but Israel was a place that archaeologists gravitated to in the Victorian period, and many of them came with a, either a personal faith in the Lord Jesus or at least a conviction that the Bible was relevant to understanding history. Now, by wonderful providence, we have a place where archaeology was developed and where the archaeological history of the ancient world has been wonderfully preserved. So this is a landscape that's done a very good job for geological and geographical reasons of preserving ancient history. Uh, there's a good climate in many of the areas of Israel for preserving ancient history. And there's also the wonderful feature of tells. Now, tells exist uh, throughout the um, ancient Near East, but uh, the, the many, many tells uh, in Israel are very significant for unlocking the past. Now, a tell is a hill. It's just the Arabic word for hill, but it's not a natural hill. It's an unnatural hill because it's the deposition of thousands of years of settlement. And so if you were to take a tell like Megiddo, uh, Megiddo, a biblical Old Testament city, you've actually got about 27 different cities there, one on top of the other. So when they first started to excavate at Megiddo by digging big, big trenches, the trench would expose potentially uh, 3,000 years of, of history, city upon city upon city. We call it Megiddo, but that's only one period of its, of its history. And so there's this happy providence here that when we excavate, we can open up so many different levels of ancient history. Now, where I've been excavating, in answer to your question, in mm. Galilee, uh, Etel is a, a tell with a, a long, long history. So many, many cities are there. The upper level was discovered to be Bethsaida. That's the Bethsaida of the Gospels. Now, that's the headline because that was a lost city in the Gospels. Uh, people knew where Capernaum was. They knew yeah. where Chorazin was. Yeah. Uh, sea of Galilee is obvious. Tiberias is mm. a major town on the mm. uh, west shore of the Sea of Galilee. But no one knew where Bethsaida was. And until Etel began to be excavated in the early 1990s, it was really confirmed as the lost city of Bethsaida. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the New Testament period town. That's a Hellenistic uh, period. So it's got evidence from the period of the Romans and uh, back to the Greeks. Uh, that's the period we'd associate with the Gospels. I've not actually been involved in that, that period. We've been on a lower level. So as we go back down through the layers, uh, we find a major gateway from uh, the 8th century BC, and this is an Old Testament town. And then I've been involved even lower than that in what's potentially a 10th century 
uh, gateway. Now, that wouldn't be Bethsaida, because Bethsaida doesn't exist in the Old Testament. And so now this has been pretty well confirmed in the last few years as a, another Old Testament town that's mm. been lost to history. And you may not have heard of it because it's not well known, but it is important in the Old Testament, and that's the town of Geshur. It's the uh, capital city of an Aramean kingdom that was were good neighbours to the kingdom of Israel. In fact, King David married the daughter of uh, the king of Geshur. And so this is almost certainly, and in archaeology, one can only talk in terms of probabilities, yeah. but I would say, you know, this is a 95%. Uh, wow. This is the lost city of Geshur. And so I've been involved in a gateway, which would actually be from the time of King David, interestingly. Yeah. Yeah. So given all those connections, yeah. uh, we're talking about now, uh, literally in the last uh, year or two, so mm. over the last 24 months, mm. the opening up of roadways and gateways and architecture architecture from the period of King David. Wow, how amazing is that? I uh, think so. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, there's some people who think that the Bible is a collection of stories, fables even. Um, you've written uh, three books, which I mentioned at the start here, uh, Backchat, Answering Christianity's Critics, Time Travel to the Old Testament and Confident Christianity. What would those, what some of what you've written in those books have to say to those who don't believe the Bible is the word of God and it is just stories and fables and how, how would how would you answer those critics? Great well all three of those books relate to my other area of interest which is what we call apologetics and apologetics is a somewhat unfortunate word in the modern world. Uh, it doesn't mean apologising. Uh, many of our students do need to learn the art of apologising, <laughs> as do I. But that's not what we teach in apologetics. In fact, we make matters worse often. Uh, because in apologetics, it's not so much about apologising as defending. It's giving an answer. So it's based on a Greek word, apologia, giving a word back. So it's answering criti Christianity's critics. That's the uh, discipline of apologetics. Now, all the books I've written relate to apologetics one way or another. Uh, so Confident Christianity is really a guide to how we do apologetics and looks at different areas like the problem of suffering, uh, the relationship of Christianity to the world religions, uh, the reliability of the Bible. Time travel to the Old Testament is more closely related to the world of archaeology and looks at uh, how we can try and understand the world of the Old Testament. So it's perhaps not directly apologetics, but it is indirectly apologetics in that it makes the case that we are not dealing in myth and legend. We are definitely in the world of real history and real people when we open up uh, our Old Testament. Mm. And then the short book, Backchat, well, that's um, really a collection of articles that I write for a, for a Christian newspaper, and they're on various topics. Uh, topics, uh, you already asked me about whether I found the Ark of the Covenant, and uh, <laughs> topics like, uh, has the Ark of the Covenant been found? Uh, various uh, issues that have come up in the news, uh, objections to Christianity, just short little chapters, which um, I guess really might be something that a non-Christian or a Christian could read and uh, dip into at any point and uh, hopefully found helpful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, clearly you've got an interest in Israel and the Middle East. Um, what does the Bible have to say about the contemporary issues going on in the Middle East today? How would you answer that? Okay, well, I would probably answer that by saying we need an hour or two now. <laughs> uh, this is uh, one of the more controversial issues in, in Christian uh, circles, and it's also one of those areas of life where the stakes are high uh, in terms of the present um, unrest and uh, the tensions that there are in the Middle East. 
And so in order to answer that question, uh, I mean, uh, let's go by a roundabout route and get there <laughs> and say that, that first of all, um, yeah, let's begin here. First of all, Christianity has a long history of anti-Semitism that it needs to reckon with. Uh, the the story of anti-Semitism in the history of the, the Christian church is not only heartbreaking, but it's deeply disturbing. Uh, people may be familiar with a famous sermon by, by Martin Luther on the Jews, but that's really only one example of what is a much deeper issue of anti-Semitism, uh, even among Christians who would have been Bible-believing in the past. Uh, one little uh, statistic which I find quite shocking is that in the 1930s, when the Nazis came to power, in the University of Berlin, we know that 30% of the medical faculty were paid-up members of the Nazi party. 30% of the medical faculty at Berlin University. However, in the theology department, it was 70%. 70% of the theology department were paid-up members of the Nazi party. Now, how is it that Christians can so easily fall into such anti-Semitism? Well, I think it's because we have a history of, I think, misreading the Bible. And there may be other factors where we've been dominated by a cultural anti-Semitism, which is another issue again. I mean, I'm only really talking about anti-Semitism in the church, but there's been another issue of anti-Semitism in culture more generally. There's been a hostility to the Jewish people, which is both um, heartbreaking, as I say, but also disturbing from a Christian point of view. Mm -hmm. Now then, in the light of that, as we look back on history, there is a remarkable thing that happens, and that's the Evangelical Awakening, Wesley and Whitfield and the Great Revival. And one of the wonderful things that comes out of the Evangelical Awakening is a rediscovery of the Bible, a rediscovery of the historicity of the Bible, and a rediscovery of the place of the Jewish people in that history. And so when we talk about some of the great figures in the Victorian period of Evangelicalism, Wilberforce, the, the Clapham sect, uh, wonderful men and women of God that were raised up to apply biblical truth to culture, to politics, to social justice, to the rights of labourers, to uh, the fate of child labourers and so on and so forth. Uh, we also find a rediscovery of love for the Jewish people, a recognition that they are uh, people that we can learn from, uh, people who we should have respect for, and people who we share in terms of the Old Testament, a common currency. And for those reasons, many of those evangelicals uh, recognise the need to do something for the Jewish people. And in particular, uh, a conviction that the land of, of Israel, or Palestine as it would have been then, part of the Ottoman Turkish Empire, in, in fact, at that time, in the Victorian period, uh, they recognise the significance of uh, the Jewish people in the, the place of God's purposes. Now, that would be the background to a developing momentum in, in the British government uh, to want to create a homeland for the Jewish people. And the famous Balfour Declaration in 1917 was very important because this was the time where, again, in the providence of God, and I think you can only really read history in terms of God being at work, it happened that the British government came to occupy uh, the region we call we called Palestine at that point, British Mandate Palestine. This was, of course, at the end of the First World War with the breakup of the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And so we occupied not only uh, British Mandate Palestine, but right across to what would later become Iraq and uh, uh, Kuwait. And then the French, of course, occupied Lebanon, Syria, what would become Lebanon and Syria. And as those parts of the region were carved up into what we now know as the, the modern Middle East with its uh, national boundaries, this is all really a post-First World War creation. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of that was this little jewel, 
which, uh, what do we call it? Palestine, Canaan, Israel, whatever we call it. it somebody's got an opinion. Well, whatever we call it, this little jewel, uh, it happened to be a period where there was evangelical influence in government. We knew that this was significant, significant theologically. And boy, was it significant theologically, because you think it wasn't many years before the Second World War broke out. And again, if it weren't in the providence of God that we had this position in the Middle East, we would have not had access to oil. And because we had that position in the Middle East, we were able to continue to supply oil to our, our military machine during the Second World War. If we hadn't, we know the Grand uh, Mufti in the region would have done a deal with the Nazis. We know that uh, Nazism would have quickly spread across that, that part of the world. But instead, the British uh, managed to maintain that presence all through the Second World War in a British Mandate Palestine. Of course, at the end of the Second World War, we were broke. <laughs> and uh, so we, we, we left and uh, evacuated and gave the keys to the United Nations. And that, of course, led to the creation of the modern state of Israel and what was originally a two-state solution. Uh, originally with a, a region that was occupied uh, by the Palestinians or by Jordan, and then, of course, the state of Israel. There was civil war, uh, the boundaries shifted, and then, of course, we can think in terms of wars that would follow in 67 and 73. Mm -hmm. But essentially, through all of that, uh, I try to give a short answer to your question, <laughs> and all I can really say is you have in Israel one of the few really good functioning democracies in mm -hmm. the Middle East mm -hmm. that manages to maintain not only innovation, technology, a strong economy, uh, and yes, military security, in the face of genuine threats from yeah. surrounding nations. So in other words, this isn't London, this isn't Paris, this is in the midst of the Middle East where there are serious threats to their existence. And of course, the, the Jewish people, and not all Israelis are Jews, of course, important to say that, there yeah. are Arab yeah. uh, Israelis too, but for the, for the Jew, Jewish Israelis, they know to take these threats seriously. This isn't like Iran threatening Britain or burning the American flag. These are nations that are on their doorstep, and these are a people who know what it is to face genocide. So they take these threats seriously. And that's why, of course, for Israel to maintain that democratic state, they do need strong security. Now, okay, putting all that out on the table, uh, the modern situation and circumstances, I does reflect ongoing tensions with particularly the unresolved issue of uh, the Palestinian people who are not Arab Israelis, so they're not in the state of Israel, but nor are they part of the state of Jordan. And so they fall into this kind of a halfway house, this no man's land. Mm. We'll hear about the Gaza Strip as well mm. as, as West Bank. Now, there is great tragedy uh, for them. And uh, if anybody visits at all, our hearts go out. We, we care very much for the Jewish people. Uh, we care for the state of Israel. And we should also show great care for the state of the Palestinian people. And that's heartbreaking too. Uh, what's the resolution? I think the resolution must be found politically. Uh, and it must be found in a way that doesn't compromise Israel's right to exist. Mm -hmm. And that's really the, the present problem. And we in the West, I think, do no favours by simply blandly supporting one side or other without recognising the importance of, of security in the Middle East yeah. and also the, the importance that justice needs to go hand in hand with a settlement that can really work. So in the modern politics, I tend to keep out of, out of it. I think this is a, a matter for, for politicians. But clearly, as you've seen from my answer, I think the Bible has an enormous amount to say mm -hmm. about the situation in the Middle East. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what is incredible, isn't it, that the you know, fall of Jerusalem, AD 70, um, the diaspora, and, and it wasn't until 1948 that um, 
the nation state of Israel came yeah. into being again. Yeah. Nineteen hundred years. I mean, it is incredible, isn't it? It is. I mean, and then, I mean, from an archaeological point of view, there's the interest of this is the time the Dead Sea Scrolls are found. I mean, you can begin to connect so many things. I think, well, isn't this incredible that at this moment of the formation of the state of Israel, you also have the rediscovery of the oldest Hebrew texts, <laughs> and they're in the land. They're in the land, yeah. and Hebrew as a language mm. is reborn. Yeah. And so this this language. I mean, who's talking? Who's mm. talking the language of the ancient Arameans, mm. or the Perizzites, or the Hivites, or the Jebusites? Mm. And yet Hebrew is is reborn, and the the the, the Hebrew text of the Old Testament mm. confirmed in its reliability by this astonishing discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And we're talking 1948. We're talking at the same same time as the uh, founding of the State of Israel. It's remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, now um, a bit of a facetious question here. What's the Bible have to say about white water rafting in the Grand Canyon? I think it's what Jesus would have wanted us to do. <laughs> uh, God has created a remarkable and beautiful uh, world for us to enjoy. And uh, as a result, when you see a chance, take it. And uh, the opportunity to go whitewater rafting down the Grand Canyon a few years ago with Canyon Ministries was a, a great opportunity to enjoy God's beautiful creation, uh, to marvel at the geology and the geography and the flora and fauna. And uh, there is nothing quite like the Grand Canyon in the entire world. It is an amazing place. When I was 18, I walked down into the Grand Canyon. And uh, I think it was a day's walk down. Uh, we overnighted somewhere and then the day, you know, early morning rise the next day. It is the most amazing place, isn't it? We camped yeah. at that point where the track comes yeah. down. Yeah. We had uh, seven nights of camping at various points. And uh, no electricity, no power, just uh, the the boat pulls over at the side of the uh, canyon and you find somewhere to pitch um well no tent of course just a camp bed it's warm enough to uh, not bother with tents yeah, and then you just amazing. hope a lizard doesn't crawl into your sleeping bag while you're sleeping <laughs> <laughs> oh good well it's good to hear that you've got time time away to to enjoy yourself now uh, i want to move a little bit more back to the bible i know we've, we've obviously talked about the bible but why is why is the bible so important to you well it goes back to my answer as to why i'm a christian uh, i mean I, I, I suppose I would say I think the Bible is just a fascinating, interesting book, regardless of what you believe. I suppose I could say that, mm -hmm. that actually in, in terms of uh, talking to a non-Christian, I might just encourage them to take an interest in the Bible purely because of its historical and literary value. And so it's fascinating in its own right. However, that's not really the point for me. I suppose I wouldn't really be interested in the Bible if I weren't a Christian. As a Christian, the Bible comes alive to me because, as I said, I became a Christian because the Christian faith answers the deepest questions of life. And how does it do that? It does it through God's word. Uh, the Christian faith doesn't answer those questions through uh, just the feelings I have or the emotions I have or my imagination running riot. I mean, that could lead me to all sorts of ridiculous ideas. But God's word addresses those questions. And so as we read the Bible, and we shouldn't read it as a kind of proof texting, just finding a verse that answers a question, but the big themes of the Bible, themes of love and justice and meaning and purpose, themes of how we do science and discovery, of creation, of history, these big themes that run through the scripture, they satisfy the deepest questions we have. And so as a Christian, the Bible has to be my number one book. Not number one in the sense that I find it the easiest book to read, because I don't. Not number one because I find it um, the easiest stories to read. They're very, you know, other stories I find much easier. But number one because it is the word of God and that answers the deepest mm. questions of life. How do you study it? My 
okay, I think there are probably three different ways that I study it in my life. Uh, so my number one way of studying it is the way I think I would encourage everyone to study it, which is in my personal devotional life. So number one, I would say that every day people need to spend time alone with God's word, uh, reading somewhere between one and four chapters a day, because that's the, well, four chapters a day will get you through the Bible in a year. And so I think reading at length scripture. So uh, I tend not to do like the little short devotional readings. I tend to read at greater length. And I do realise that actually means sometimes it washes over me because mm. I tend to do that in the morning. Mm. And so I'm very well aware that when you read large chunks, I, I know it because as the years go by, I know I've read the Bible through a number of times and yet I'm still seeing things I've, I don't think I've ever seen before. <laughs> so it must be the case that I miss things when I read large chunks. But I would still do it that way because it allows me to kind of soak it up. And there are ways in which scripture is then incorporated into prayer or into my thinking or into the day ahead. So number one is the devotional uh, reading of scripture. Number two is more study, and that's where there might be something that's of, of just of interest to me, or I would read scripture. Now, of course, I've got a job that means I'm doing that anyway all the time, and that's a privilege. I hope that if my next job is a bus driver or something, I hope that I won't let go of wanting to do that kind of study. You know, if I'm interested in, well, what does the Bible say about Bethsaida in the Gospels? I hope I'll do a study on that. And that's to take a bit of time to, uh, maybe with the, the guides and helps and so on, uh, commentaries and uh, handbooks, I'll study a particular topic that's of interest to me. That's the second way. Now the third way is to study for a purpose. And actually ha having been pastor of a church for about 12 years, this is the enormous privilege. This is the huge privilege of pastoring a church is the weekly preaching of God's word. Because for me that meant I had to study under pressure to prepare a 30 minute sermon, in fact often two 30 minute sermons, every Sunday week by week. So I would tend to preach through books of the Bible and I would preach uh, 30 minutes on a Sunday morning in a book of the Bible. Often in the evening I'd do 30 minutes as more of a topic. But under pressure, that kind of study is, as anybody who's, who's listening uh, preachers will know, it teaches us a lot more than the congregation. The amount we learn when we have to prepare under pressure to deliver a message, mm. we learn a huge amount. <laughs> Sometimes I just felt I should have been paying the congregation the opportunity <laughs> to do this kind of study. Yeah, fantastic. Um, do you have a favourite Bible character or, or book even? Now, I, I guess that may be a bit of an unfair question, you know, with, with the job that you do and having been a pastor and, you know, but is there one particularly that, you know, if you had a choice of all the 66 books, you'd say, oh, actually. That's <laughs> so hard. I mean, from an archaeology point of view, I am really intrigued by the book of Joshua. But I do find the book of Joshua quite difficult from a theological point of view. Mm. Uh, there are things I struggle with in the book of Joshua. I think there are answers as to why God, for example, the issue of the judgment on the nations in the book of Joshua, uh, which yeah. can be very difficult, I think, uh, morally in the light of, of who Christ is, mm -hmm. until we place it in the context of the book of Revelation. Because uh, in that sense, of course, when Jesus turns up on the white charger in the book of Revelation to deliver judgment on the nations, it is, uh, it is the fulfillment of what we glimpse in the book of Joshua. So in that sense, I think we should understand that if we have a problem with the book of Joshua judgments, we're going to have a problem with the book of Revelation judgments. Uh, Jesus Christ is not only the God of all love and mercy, he is also the God of judgment mm. and the deliverer and the warrior. So there are things in the book of Joshua that nonetheless, despite what I've just said there, I do struggle with. But I think from an archaeological point of view, uh, that would be high up on my uh, uh, list of um, 
if, if you're going to single out a book for me to take away to a desert island. From a personal point of view, I think the book of Hebrews, I don't know who wrote it, but I think the book of Hebrews would be a, a top one for me because it's the, it's the book that connects the Christian faith to the Jewish faith so clearly. And it also gives us wonderful, wonderful ways of understanding the fulfillment theme. Mm -hmm. And that connection between the, the Jewish faith and the New Testament Christian faith, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between the covenants, I think that word fulfillment is the key word, fulfillment. And fulfillment is something that the book of Hebrews really explains as each chapter goes by. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but you know, once you get me started on this, I would say in terms of the Gospels, I love the Gospel of Mark because it's so quick and punchy. You can read it through so quickly. And I love the book of Isaiah because it just expands our minds. And from an imaginative fiction point of view, I think there are some books of the Bible that are true. They're telling us absolute truth, but they do expand our imaginations. And some of the prophecies do that. Uh, the book of Daniel uh, does that as well. I mean, it's true. It's true history, but it's written in beautiful narrative form. And that kind of Hebrew Jewish storytelling, uh, you get a lot of that in the book of Judges as well. Fantastic storytelling, the way it uses repetition, the way it uses comedy, there's humour, uh, there's patterns, uh, the way in which it uses uh, rhetoric. Uh, I just love all of that from a storytelling point of view. So I've probably given you about six favourite books there, actually, in answer to your question. OK, and what about a favourite Bible verse? <laughs> so how Narry, about narrowing it down even more well how about philippians chapter 4 verse 8 uh, philippians chapter 4 verse 8 finally brothers and sisters whatever is true whatever is noble whatever is right whatever is pure whatever is lovely whatever is admirable if anything is excellent or praiseworthy think about such things why why is that so important i think in our lives as Christians, we need to do two things. John Stott put it very well, actually, as a preacher. John Stott said we should have the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other hand in order to build that bridge. And I think as Christians, we need to have that sense of wanting to, to love God's word and be rooted in the Bible, but also loving the world and enjoying the good things of culture. This is to do with common grace, that actually Non-Christians can make good TV programs and write good books and, and be good fun uh, when, you, when you chat to them. And we shouldn't be afraid of that because actually, on the one hand, we can know the special revelation and special grace of God's word. And on the other hand, the common grace of God at work in the world. Now, I believe that's very important, but it's dangerous. Uh, we need to be careful here how we do this, that we don't love the world in the wrong sense. We need to think about what the word world really means here and Philippians chapter 4 verse 8 helps us it helps us chart a course there are lovely beautiful good wholesome healthy things in this world it's God's world and in culture and art and film and music there are good things going on outside of the church and Philippians 4 8 helps me in that it helps me chart a course to pick out what is good and healthy and lovely and focus on those things. And I realise there are some other things in the world that are not healthy and not good. And Philippians 4 verse 8 warns me away from them. Mm. We, we use that verse actually as parents with that we have three sons. And in terms of, you know, what when they, were, when they were growing up and, you know, what they were to watch on television or what they were to read in magazines and stuff, we used it like a filter for them as a guide, if you like. You're talking about a guide there too. To, and I love that the end of that verse talks, you know, let your mind dwell on these things. Um, filter what, is a good word as well, though. Yeah, sorry? that's helpful. Your word filter, that's a very helpful yeah, word to describe. Yeah, and, you know, and, it's, and, yeah. and, you know, what we, 
I think what we put into our minds is so important, isn't it? What we fill our minds with yeah. often yeah. becomes what we then, who we are and, and, and what, how we behave. And, and so, so filling our mind with those good things is, is, is yeah. important, isn't it? Um, so we are coming up to the summer. I know you, you spend time away from Moorlands doing stuff. What, what have you got coming up this summer at all? Well, the first thing is I'm going to be involved in a holiday club in our church so we hope to have 100 children uh, along for a holiday club and I'll be dressing up as a space character and uh, <laughs> hopefully encouraging kids to read the bible and then after that I've got some holidays so a couple of weeks away in France with the family so we'll uh, uh, disappear to a quiet part of the Loire Valley and uh, vanish for a while get some reading done and then after that it's the British New Testament Society so I'm delivering a paper uh, there on, a, uh, on the gospels. Wonderful. Now, to conclude this, imagine that someone's listening to this podcast. Um, they're open spiritually, but they're, they're, they're not convinced about the veracity of the Bible or, or the person of Jesus. What would you say to them? Well, I would in encourage them to have a go at reading. You can really drop in anywhere in the Bible, but take a gospel like the Gospel of Mark and notice how many historical geographical references are made. In other words, don't worry too much immediately about the theology of what you're reading or the meaning of what you're reading. Just start reading and notice how many times you'll get a place name, a geographical reference, a reference to something else happening in history at the same time as the gospel is describing the events. Notice those things and then think how different that is from myth, fairy tale or legend. The genre is quite different. Myth legend begins in the way that George Lucas begins Star Wars. Once upon a time in a land far away or a long time ago in a galaxy far away. This is the standard genre of the fairy tale or the myth or the legend. It's a long time ago. It's, it's not a place in particular. It's uh, outside of space and time in that sense. But you read any book of the Bible, take Mark's gospel, and you'll notice very, very quickly the genre is history. And historians who started to look into this, archaeologists who've looked into this, have shown that history is reliable and good. You can double check it. It allows itself to be double checked. That's how God's revealed himself. So unlike myth and poetry and legend, which are all good in their own way and all enjoyable in their own way, the Bible is real history. Fantastic. Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Um, it's been a real pleasure and a privilege to talk to you. Uh, God bless you in your work here at Moorlands as you um, disciple and teach and lead um, the future leaders in a sense and uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, I would love to join you one day on a dig in Israel um, been to Israel a few times myself so I can picture the places that you're talking about so yeah God bless you thank you so much thank you Nigel been a pleasure thank you you've been listening to the Bible and Me podcast if you enjoyed what you heard be sure to subscribe and leave a rating or review if you want to find out more about Precept Ministries UK, visit www.precept.org.uk. Thank you.